If you have a Bible, let's open up to John chapter 9 this morning as we carry on in our over a year-long study through this great gospel account. Remember, if you have no idea where John is, that's okay. Feel free to use the table of contents. It's not a sin to use it. You go in the New Testament, go halfway in your Bible and start turning to the right. You'll hit Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then you'll be in John. Look for the number, big number nine. That's the chapter that we're going to be in. We're going to start in verse one. We're actually going to study the entire chapter today, so we've got a lot of work to do this morning. But while you're turning there and opening up to the Gospel of John, chapter nine, I want to tell you a little story. On June the 27th in 1880, a young girl was born in Tuscumbia, Alabama, a place that I visited for the first time in my life a little over two years ago when I was examined by Providence Presbytery at a church there to take this call. And at 19 months old, she contracted an illness that many now believe was a form of meningitis that left her both blind and deaf. And she would later describe this uh, like being at sea in a dense fog. Put yourself in her shoes for a moment and imagine a world without sight or sound. Completely cut off. No sight. No sound. You can see how she would describe it as being at sea in a dense fog. Probably by now you have figured out that this girl's name was Helen Keller. And she lived in a world of deafness and blindness for seven long years because no one knew how to care for her. But later, on March 5th, 1887, a young woman named Ann Sullivan came into her life and she would later go on and describe that day as her soul's birthday. Here's what Keller wrote about this. She said, Gradually I got used to the silence and darkness that surrounded me, and I forgot that it had ever been different until she came, my teacher, who set my spirit free. Finally, someone met her in her darkness and began to speak to her and teach her, and it changed the entire trajectory of her life because she was actually able in her own way to quote-unquote see the world around her for the first time. As Anne would come and she would run water over her hand and then she would spell water in her hand and little by little taught her that's what this thing is and started giving it names and put uh, you know, names with the sensations that she was feeling. And for the longest time she had just kind of lived in this world of darkness and, and deafness. But finally somebody moved towards her in the midst of that darkness and she could finally see for the first time. More on that later. As we look at chapter 9 this morning, throughout chapter 8, we saw Jesus in conflict with the Pharisees during the Feast of Tabernacles. And during the final night of the feast, huge torches were lit during the temple illumination ceremony. Remember we talked about that, where he pointed to and he said, I'm the light of the world. Jesus announced that he was the light of the world and that those who don't follow him walk in spiritual darkness. Last week we saw the Pharisees take great offense to this and they pointed to their physical lineage as the children of Abraham as the thing that gave them right standing with God. Remember Jesus said, those who don't follow me walk around in spiritual darkness. And the Pharisees said, but we're descendants of Abraham. Of course we're God's children. And then Jesus did something very interesting. He pointed to their spiritual blindness that had only been compounded by their pride and self-sufficiency. 
The Pharisees were so blinded by their pride that they failed to recognize the Son of God in their midst, completely rejected Him, and actually tried to kill Him several times. In doing so, they proved that they were spiritually blind and actually serving their true spiritual father, according to Jesus, the devil. Now in chapter 9, we see Jesus leaving the temple. And you think about this in many ways. He is the embodiment of the true light going out into the world to seek and save those lost in spiritual darkness. That's where we are in chapter 9. And as soon as his feet leave those temple stairs, we read about this encounter with a man who had been born blind. And Jesus used this encounter to teach the Pharisees and us this morning something very important about what it means to truly see. See if you can pick up on this this morning as we read this chapter together. Let's give attention to the reading of God's Word, John chapter 9. I'm going to read it a good clip because we've got a lot of verses to cover. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Whatever version you have is fine. I'd rather you read the one that you have there. If you need one, there's a pew Bible there in front of you. You can open up and follow along. Let's give attention to the reading of God's Word. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, It was not this, that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva, and he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So we went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? And he answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. And they said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. And they brought to the Pharisees the man who had been formerly blind, and now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight, and he said to him, He put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, he's a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked him, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then, do we now, how then does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but, but how he now sees we do not know. Nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he's of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So for a second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God, we know that this man is a sinner. And he answered, Whether he is a sinner I do not know. One thing I do know, that, that though I was blind, now I see. And they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I've already told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? 
And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Why? This is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And they answered him, You were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. And Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord does indeed stand forever. Let's pray and ask the Lord's help as we look to this text. Please pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we come with expectant hearts to your word, and we ask and pray that you would speak to us, O Lord, as we long to hear a word from outside of ourselves. Please re-describe reality to us again this morning. We are so quick to forget. Lord, hide us behind the cross and help us to glory in your name this morning. And we're thankful that you've not left us alone to figure this out. You've given us your word, you've given us your spirit, and you've given us each other. Lord, speak to our hearts now. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so if you're a note-taking type of person this morning, the big question that we're going to ask is, how does the gospel help us understand what it means to truly see our lives and the world around us? How does the gospel help us to truly understand what it means to see our lives and the world around us? We're going to look at two things this morning. Number one, we're going to look at the barriers to true sight. And our second point, we're going to see the bringer of true sight. So the barriers to true sight the bringer of true sight. Those are our two points. Let's look at the first point, the barriers to true sight. This is basically verses 1 through 34. Big chunk. As the chapter opens, the Pharisees have been left grumbling in the temple, and now Jesus and his disciples, and probably some from the crowd that were watching all this go on, walk out of the temple and into the city of Jerusalem, and they meet this blind man that we meet in verse 1. We never get to know his name. And we find out that he was born blind, as he, and as he begged on the street, as we see in verse 8, we later find out in verse 18 that his parents were still alive and had abandoned him sometime in the past. In verse 2, the disciples ask a very strange question. You may have picked up on this. Look at verse 2. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? It was a common Jewish belief in Jesus' time that suffering and physical defects could be traced to sin and even into the womb. Basically, what they were saying is, it's your fault. <laughs> it's your fault. Who sinned? Your parents? You? Basically, the reason why you're like this is because it's your fault. Imagine saying this to parents who have a child born with physical or mental disabilities, blaming and shaming them for sin saying it's, it's really your fault. What a sickening thought. 
Many false teachers today still teach that the reason why people are sick and experience suffering is because they have unconfessed sin or they don't have enough faith or they don't give enough money. Again, you pick up on the line of thinking. Again, it's their fault. It's your fault why you suffer. It's because you haven't given enough or you haven't prayed enough or you don't believe enough. Look at verses 3 through 5. Instead of awkwardly looking away and ignoring the man, Jesus moves towards him in an act of love and compassion. And he also points to the purposes of a sovereign God. Look at verse 3. Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Often in the midst of pain and suffering, we are so blinded by our pain and hardship that we miss the larger providence of God at work in our lives. And one thing we need to remember, even when life gets tough, is that God is always at work. He is always at work, even when life gets tough. Yes, sin and death exist in this world, and the Bible never shies away from that fact. But passages like this one remind us that there is a greater plan of redemption at work in the midst of that brokenness. And that it all leads back to a faithful God and His loving heart towards His people. Sometimes God allows us to experience difficulty to draw closer to Him, to make us more like Jesus, and experience His mercy and deliverance over the long haul. The fancy word for that theologically is called sanctification. As we are made more and more like the image of Christ, all for His glory and for our good. And in many ways, we we miss out. Oftentimes, because in the moment when life gets hard and we're suffering, it's hard, right? And we ask the questions, God, have you forgotten about me? God, do you not see what's going on? God, will you ever bring this to an end? And what the scripture reminds us over and over again is he's right there with us in the midst of suffering, working it all out for his glory. And we need to be careful not to charge God with injustice unless we can see what he sees. He sees the larger plan. He sees the larger picture. We've even heard testimony about that this morning, of how God is always at work, working always behind the scenes, bringing redemption to bear. Here's what John Piper said. He said, suffering can only have ultimate meaning in relationship to God. Without God, all suffering is just pain, with no purpose, with no ultimate hope in redemption. And so we are left in this cold universe that doesn't answer us back at all. Pain and suffering only find their own ultimate meaning in relationship to God. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Again, here's what Piper said. The reason causes are not the ultimate explanation for things is that God is not ultimately a responder, but ultimately a planner. In other words, when God ordains that something happens, God is not at the bottom responding to human causes. He is at the top, planning a purpose. End quote. So in the midst of suffering and abandonment, when you think about what is going on here in this text, this man is suffering, he's been abandoned, the stage is now set for a great miracle. 
Put yourself in the man's shoes. Imagine this man hearing Jesus say, as long as I am the world, I am the light of the world. And then sensing a a man's hands applying wet mud to your face. You might sense this guy coming, kneeling down next to you, and you kind of hear what he's doing, and all of a sudden you've got wet mud and dirt on your face. You're wondering, what in the world is going on here? And many have asked, why the mud? Why did Jesus make mud? I've read a hundred commentaries on this. Nobody really knows. We don't know. And I think it would would be just making something up and conjecture to say, we don't know. But Jesus constantly was pointing and using other things as teaching aids. And so we just say, the Lord knew what he was doing. We'll find out one day. Then imagine, as you are in that guy's shoes, imagine hearing that same person tell you to go wash in the pool of Siloam and having to probably ask for help as you held someone's arm as they led you to the pools. Most commentators think there was a distance of at least 70 yards. So think, you know, possibly even more. So a football field away, and you're being led to this pool with your face covered in mud. But then having a new sensation in your heart as you begin to think, could this actually work? What's going on here? Keep in mind the unnamed blind man by faith trusts the man Jesus who first moved towards him in love and called him to obey. And so they finally arrive at the pool of Siloam, the same pool referred to as living water from which the priest drew the water for the ceremony back in chapter 7. The same pool that the Jews used to make themselves ritually clean before entering God's temple. Now the same pool that this poor blind beggar was sent to by the very one that that pool pointed to in the first place. Think about what's going on here as we look in this text. Christ could have just spoken to him and healed him right then, but he chose to use that pool as a sign of rebuke for a temple system that had focused only on outward observance and had missed the very heart of God. Think about how many times this man had been passed by Pharisees. Think about how many times this man may have been passed by his own parents as he sat and begged in the street while they were on their way to temple worship. All the outward observance, but missing the heart of God. They were just as spiritually blind as this man was to the things of God, blinded by their pride, their indifference, and outward religious observance. Kent Hughes, in his commentary, called this little gathering that happens a little mini-Sanhedrin. And he says, The mini-Sanhedrin dissolved into controversy as they realized that the miracle was performed on the Sabbath. Even making clay on the Sabbath was a sin according to rabbinic law. So you see, the Pharisees, let's say in, in better parlance, the church folks, getting all up in arms because Jesus is healing this man on the Sabbath. And I was thinking about this passage this week. I wonder how often we are indifferent to the work of God around us because we're too focused on ourselves or blinded by our pride. Focus more on paint colors and programs than people. Focus more on being right instead of being repentant. Focused on being spiritual instead of spirit-filled. Focused more on comfort and control than the cross. I wonder how often we are indifferent to the things of God around us because we're only looking at ourselves. And we see the spiritual pride on full display as this man, now healed and seeing for the very first time in his life, is brought up the stairs and he's set before the Pharisees. It's like being pulled into the principal's office. 
And think about what's going on. Instead of rejoicing and finally repenting of their continued rejection of Jesus as the Messiah, they're finally saying, okay, he's actually done this. This guy was blind, and now he sees, and he says, I am the Son of God. And instead of falling on their knees and repenting before God the Father and saying, we finally see. Instead of doing that, they only reveal more of their spiritual blindness as they try to discredit this public miracle. Look at what they say in verse 16. So some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, speaking of Jesus, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? You see them continue on in verse 18 where they think Jesus had played a trick on them and that everybody else was a liar in the many ways that this guy was like a plant and he had only been pretending to be blind. And so what they do is they bring, uh, they summon his parents to the principal's office too to prove that this man was blind from birth, as they say in verse 19. And in verses 20 and 23, the parents now abandon the one who had healed their son by refusing to claim the name of Jesus and identify with him. Remember, there's no discussion of why this man had been abandoned by his parents. The Pharisees were painfully silent on that. They offered no rebuke to the parents. How in the world could you have abandoned your son? They're painfully silent. Even worse, those same, those same Pharisees were excommunicating anyone associated with Christ from the temple, cutting them off from all temple help, all temple worship, all temple community. In many ways, cutting them off even from access to God himself, saying, you are not allowed in this temple anymore. And people were afraid. People were afraid of the religious leaders. Oh, ouch. It just drilled me. They were afraid of the church folks because they were so prideful and full of self-righteousness. Look in verse 24. As they turn their guns on the man and press him again to call Jesus a sinner. Think about what they're doing. They're actually pressuring this poor man to commit blasphemy. To commit blasphemy, call Jesus a sinner. Say that he's a sinner. They're so concerned with Jesus' blasphemy by calling himself the Son of God, they're actually committing sin and making this guy commit blasphemy in front of them. Think about just the blindness that's here. And in verses 25 to 27, this interrogation continues, but the man's replies fall on deaf ears. The man actually asks them if they are wanting to follow Christ too because of their endless questions about him. I noticed y'all chuckled when, you, when we read that through the first time. You were saying, you know, they're just constantly asking about Jesus. He's like, well, wait, do y'all want to follow him too? I mean, you're asking a lot about him. You can imagine how the Pharisees responded to that in verses 28 and 29. They responded with hatred to this question. Look at what they say in verse 28. Where the man asked, do you want to be his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. Again, they point to their spiritual pedigree and how they're disciples of Moses. And that Greek word translated reviled is loidereo. And what that Greek word actually implies is heaping insults upon. So you can see that they are just piling it on. 
They're teaming up against him. They are hurling insults at this man. They're just kicking him while he's down, basically. And they just all pile on. Amazingly enough, the man actually points out their blindness and he turns the guns on them. Did you pick up on that? In verses 30 to 33, he challenges their assertion that Jesus is a sinner because his miracle proves that he's from God. And he is astonished that the Pharisees are so blind to what is plainly before them. He's like, what what do you mean? Only God could have done this. How do the Pharisees respond to the testimony of this man? They kick him out, don't they? They cast him out. Why? Their pride. See what they say? They say, we refuse to be taught by someone like you. Who are you to teach us? And they cast him out. As we move into our second point, I found this quote from St. John Chrysostom, one of the church fathers, speaking about this passage. He says, the Jews cast him out of the temple, but the Lord of the temple found him. And that's our second point. The bringer of true light, verses 35 to 41. Verse 35, notice how Jesus moved towards this man in his unbelief. Up until this point, Jesus has only healed the outward blindness, and now he heals the heart. Jesus goes up and asks the man, do you believe in the Son of Man? Remember, that's one of Jesus' favorite self-designations of himself, the Son of Man. Verse 36, the man's reply shows that he still doesn't exactly know who Jesus is. Remember, he, he earlier said he thought he was a prophet, but he is willing to learn and be taught. Think about the contrast between him and the Pharisees. This blind man is saying, well, who is he? How can I know more about him? Where the Pharisees just immediately, they say, we we refuse to be taught by anyone. It's a pretty amazing contrast when you think about it. And in verse 37, Jesus reveals that he's the Son of God and the promised Messiah. In verse 38, the spiritual eyes of this man are opened. He's regenerated. And he finally sees who Jesus is and worships him. Jesus says, I'm that guy. Who's the son of man that I can go find out more about him? Jesus said, you're looking at him. I'm the guy that healed you. That's me. And finally, in an instant, the the spirit changes his heart. And he says, Lord, I believe. I believe you are who you say you are. Think about this, about all of the Think about all the miracles and things that had happened that the Pharisees had been keeping up with along the way. Just public miracle after public miracle after public miracle after public miracle. And yet their hearts are hard. They refuse to say, yes, Lord, we believe that you are the Son of God. And this simple man whom Jesus moved towards with compassion and grace is healed. And he says, yes, Lord, I believe. I believe you are the Son of God. In verse 39, Jesus talks about the impact of his coming judgment. Here's what Kent Hughes said in his helpful commentary. He said, Christ came into this world so that those who think they have spiritual insight will be shown to be blind. And so those who do not suppose they have spiritual insight will see. The whole argument centers around the idea of need. Those who know they are blind are the ones to whom Jesus can give sight. According to Jesus, the ones who go blind are the ones who do not see their need for him. And the Pharisees thought they had it all together and they missed the spiritual darkness in their own hearts. They were so worried about everybody else that they missed their own heart and the condition of what was going on right here. They did not see themselves as blind beggars before a holy God. They saw themselves as, we don't need anyone else. We have what we need already. 
Again, Kent Hughes said the Pharisees knew none of this. It was not their style. Remember Jesus' parable about two men who went up to the temple to worship, a Pharisee and a tax collector? The Pharisee went into the temple and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, unwilling to even lift his eyes to heaven, simply prayed, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Kent goes on to say, Self-satisfied people, the religious know-it-alls, believe they see but are blind. For the soul that desires to remain in ignorance of sin that prefers his own darkened understanding, there is no hope. You want to know the key to understanding this passage? How do we think about what's going on here? The key to understanding this passage is simply this. You understand your own spiritual blindness and your need for Christ. You see yourself as an undeserving beggar before a holy God. But you also see Jesus as a gracious and loving Savior. You see him as the Son of God, the one who sought you out, the one who switched places with you, the one who died in your place so that you could be redeemed and restored and made whole again. And the only response to this is not one of pride. It is not one of arrogance. It is one of absolute humility and gratitude and asking the question, Lord, why me? Why would you ever choose to set your love upon me? It's not, oh, look at how spiritual I am, and look at how I've got my life all together, and I've been going to church, you know, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday afternoon for the rest for my whole life. You're not pointing to what you have done and said, look, aren't you lucky to have me on your team? You're saying, I have nothing apart from you, Christ. I am a helpless, blind beggar. You see, the gospel of grace will never make sense to you in, until you see yourself as the blind man by the side of the road in this passage. You are not some unaffected onlooker checking this scene out. You are the blind one. If you're honest with yourselves, if we're actually being biblical, you're the dead one beside the, beside the road. We give ourselves way too much credit. All that we have done is through Christ as he has moved towards us in love. If you are here and you have affection for Christ and you claim Him as your Savior, it is because He first moved towards you in your spiritual sickness and death. We love because He first loved us. Isn't that amazing when you think about it? It's the gospel of grace. And the gospel's never going to make sense to you until you realize that you're not a good person. We hate hearing it, especially down here in the South. That's tacky. But the gospel's never going to make sense to you until you realize just how sinful you are and just how gracious God is. Once that flips, it changes your life. You'll never read the scripture the same way again because you see yourself properly before a holy God. As we say, God's holy, 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 and we're what? Not, not, not. So we are in desperate need of a Savior, are we not? And aren't we thankful for a Savior who moves towards us when we were at our worst, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, and we have been made alive together with Christ. It's by grace you've been saved, and not your own doing, so that no man may boast. And we are so prone to boast, are we not? To say, look at what I have done. 
I made this decision, or I sought Christ out. No, you didn't. You were shaking your fist at Him, and you needed a new heart. And by grace, God gave it to you. And so we don't get to stand around and go, look at how awesome I am for all that I have done. What we do is we say, thank you, Jesus. It is heads bowed in worship and humility as we come confessing our true nature before Him. Again, Kent Hughes, he was just really helpful, so I just pulled a bunch of quotes from him. He's smarter than me. Here's what Kent said. The ground of seeing and spiritual growth is the awareness of how dark our hearts are and how desperately we need Christ. When our Lord is in his opening words in the Sermon on the Mount said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those who realize they have nothing within themselves to commend them to God. He revealed not only what is required to see the kingdom of God, but to keep growing and seeing. It is blind beggars who keep on seeing. D.T. Niles once wrote, Christianity is just one beggar telling the other beggars where to find the bread of life. That's it. You think about this great quote that says, The only thing that you bring to the salvation equation is the sin that made it necessary. That's the only thing you bring to this whole cross, Jesus thing, is the sin that put him there. That's it. It's all you bring. Here's what Spurgeon said. It is not our littleness that hinders Christ, but our bigness. It is not our weakness that hinders Christ. It is our strength. It is not our darkness that hinders Christ. It is our supposed light that holds back his hand. Basically, we're prideful. And we miss the things of God because we, like the Pharisees, are saying, but look at all this that I've done when the true response to any of this gospel message is humility. Humility before the Lord. In 1772, a 47-year-old man sat down to compose a poem that would later be put to music. After a lifetime on the sea, this man had begun to write a collection of poems as a tribute to a great friendship with a man named William Cowper. This man had been radically transformed by the gospel after a career in the slave trade and a lifetime of mocking religion openly. But he would later write about how God had met him in his prideful blindness and saved him. He finally saw his true condition before Christ when he is attributed as saying, I am a great sinner, but Christ is a great Savior. That man's name was John Newton. And the poem that he wrote is now the hymn we know as Amazing Grace. The very first stanza, probably the most well-known hymn in America and probably the most well-known stanza of the most well-known hymn. You think about what Newton is writing there after the life that he had lived and the radical transformation that God had worked in his heart. The very first stanza talks about how Jesus saved a blind, wretched beggar like himself and gave him eyes to see. John 9, ladies and gentlemen. The Gospel. The Gospel. Remember, we've talked about before, we don't, the thing that makes grace amazing is the fact that you don't deserve it. That's what makes grace, grace. If you merited it, it's not grace. It's payment for what you've done. Remember, a, a description of grace is we're about to sing this great hymn. And we think amazing grace. What in the world does that mean? Grace, unmerited favor, given to an unworthy recipient by an unobligated giver. And remember, we don't sing cooperative grace 
How sweet the sound that helped me save myself. I once could kind of see, but now I figured it out. It don't work like that. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. That's the gospel. So the question this morning as we close is, do you see your need for Christ today? Maybe for the first time. Let's say you're here and you don't know Christ. I'm so glad you're here. Do you see yourself as a sinner in desperate need of Christ's grace and mercy? If so, flee to Christ. Repent of your sin. Do you see your ongoing need for Jesus today? Or are you so caught up in your spiritual performance that you actually think that it's you that's making all this happen? If so, repent. Repent. Are you stealing glory from Christ that only He deserves because you are looking at yourself too much? Look to the Savior and live. Look to Him with bowed head. Say, Lord, why would you ever be so gracious to me? Why would you ever be so kind? Why would you ever meet me? Wretched as I was. When that gets in your bones, you can sing Amazing Grace with everything you got. Because you know what it cost Jesus to rescue and redeem you. You know what it cost the Father. And you can also sing about this great hope that has been secured in Christ. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. We owe it all to Him. We owe it all to Him. And that's what makes the gospel sweet. That's what makes passages like this come to life and almost get legs and walk around us a little bit. And we say, thank you, Jesus, for all that you've done. Amen? Amen. All right, we're going to pray, and then we're going to sing our guts out, okay? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your mercy and your kindness. Thank you for passages like this, reminder of your grace and your mercy and how you sought us out when we were wicked enemies of you. And Lord, even in the midst of our spiritual death and our wickedness, you came towards us in grace and compassion, and you gave us a new heart and cleaned us up and brought us to you. Father, it is an amazing thing to sit and stare at the gospel and how quickly we forget it. Lord, forgive us for all the ways that we put ourselves in the Savior's seat. And Lord, help us with great humility to bow our heads before you and say, Lord, we have nothing apart from you. And Lord, why would you ever choose to set your love upon a blind, wretched beggar like me? And so, Lord, we come to you with a proper sense of our need, but a proper understanding of you, that you are so kind and so gracious, and so compassionate, and so merciful. And Lord, you are a good shepherd, and you walk with us until the very end, and you are our king that rules over us and subdues our enemies. And Lord, we rest in you. May that give us hope, even in the midst of struggle. And we pray and ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.